From Reboot, this is In Quarantine with Steve Bodo. I'm, look, you guys are smart. You can figure it out. I'm, I'm Steve Bodo. And for the next six or eight or 300 weeks, we're going to be talking with some of the most interesting people we know about how they are living and working in this very, very strange coronavirus time. Because amidst all the coping, there's also a lot of creativity going on. And since the pandemic is one of those rare events that affect pretty literally everyone, everyone's got a story. And I'll start with mine. The first time I saw coronavirus was going to be something serious was January 31st in the airport in Johannesburg. See, my family and I, that's my wife, Kath, my two daughters, 12 and 13, we were heading home after a month in South Africa. Last December, I quit my job. I'd been show running Patriot Act, the political comedy show on Netflix, which I was doing after 17 years writing and producing The Daily Show with Jon Stewart and with Trevor Noah. Kath, a professor, she had a sabbatical. I had a bunch of TV projects that I wanted to pursue in 2020. And we also wanted to do some traveling. So off we went for a month. It was summer in South Africa. There was elephants, the whole thing. We'd heard just kind of in passing that there was this new virus in China. Hadn't thought much of it. And then we're wrapping the trip up and we get to the airport and we hit the emigration line. And a ton of people were wearing masks, like face masks, surgical face masks. I remember thinking how paranoid and silly they were being. In retrospect, it seemed odd even after we got back, because we got back to the US early February and there was nothing, certainly no masks. People were barely talking about this virus. Life seemed completely normal you know, for about a month. And then it hit New York. That's where we live. Nobody knew yet that New York was going to become virus central, one of the worst hit areas in the whole world. But in a matter of days, it went from distant concern to there were some schools closing, to our kids' schools closing, then I realized that all those paranoid travelers back in Johannesburg were right. Kath had read the writing on the wall before I did. This was before any sort of stay-at-home order or anything. So we found a rental house about 50 miles north of town and left Brooklyn on March 16th. And now here we are. I'm talking to you from this upstairs bedroom in this house in Orange County that's got room for a laptop and a mic stand. Uh, the bedroom also has no door. So if you hear a noise coming from downstairs, that's just because that's how we live now. So it's the four of us. We're doing pretty much okay, but I miss people. I miss my friends. I miss everybody. We all do. So that's the point of this podcast, to talk to some people about how they're living in this time. And you guys get to eavesdrop. We've got a great one to start with. My friend AJ Jacobs is the author of four New York Times bestsellers. His four TED Talks have total views more than 7 million. He's a frequent contributor to NPR's Weekend Edition, and he writes for The Times and Esquire Magazine, among others. AJ, welcome to In Quarantine. Thank you. Thank you for that lovely introduction. I don't know where you got those numbers, but they sound wildly suspect, but thank you anyway. I don't believe them. I'm only repeating what I was told. <laughs> so uh, tell me, where are you coming from today? I'm actually one of the only writers not in Brooklyn. I'm in uh, on the Upper West Side. Oh, that's right. But then I have since fled, as of three days ago, I fled to uh, my parents' house in East Hampton, which I know is not, uh, I'm not roughing it. I mean, the main thing is the sound of the ambulances every 30 seconds. That was what was really giving me so much anxiety. So I'm thankful to be free, uh, siren free. You, your family, who, who are you out there with? Your parents, you mentioned. Well, they are actually in the city. So uh, <laughs> you didn't let them come out with you? No. What? Or what are you crazy? What kind of son? <laughs> they have not left their apartment in like four weeks and they don't even want to risk getting in a car. So uh, 
so yeah, it's just me. It's my my wife, my three sons, and various laptops. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's been interesting. I mean, this whole thing. I have had a long history of germophobia for like twenty years, and I I don't say this proudly, but because it, it caused a lot of anxiety. But I was doing the elbow bump and the air handshake for many many years uh, before it became trendy. And weirdly, two years ago. I had made a conscious decision to try to give up my germophobia. And I did that for a couple of reasons. One was about Judaism, actually. I felt the stereotype of the OCD germophobic Jew was a little tired. It was like, you know, Larry David and Howie Mandel. And I was like, I don't want to feed into that. So, uh, and the second reason was our president, Donald Trump, who at that point, before he started downplaying pandemics was considered a germaphobe but you didn't want to uh, be in his company right i felt every other issue pretty much i disagree with him so maybe this germophobia deserves a second look so i really worked hard with like cognitive behavioral therapy to get over my germophobia wow. and then the punchline is like now i'm back germophobia is back you were right all along you were just early it was very unusual. well yeah. I mean, I um, I feel that uh, I'm trying to have a slightly different flavor to my germophobia, so it's not quite as emotional, and it's a little more evidence-based and, and less based on disgust. You're headed into a realm of connoisseurship, I think. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, not, not, not a lot of us can fully appreciate. Yeah. <laughs> But it's something. But on the other hand, I think. Well, again, you're just ahead of the curve. This level of discernment about what kind of germophobia you have, I think, is something that the rest of us will slowly be developing, and then by then you'll have moved on to something else. I'll have another phobia. Yeah. Um, so are you guys doing the full like wash down everything? I mean, that's most of my day is wiping down grocery packages. I, I am definitely, I've embraced the whole thing. You know, I have actually another Jewish link to germophobia. I just I'm realized. sure you do. What is it? <laughs> it is. I wrote a book um, about living by all the rules of the Bible for a year. And, uh, and in that book, as well, you might which know, was, which was called The Year of Living Biblically. But the Bible says that you cannot touch women when they are menstruating. So I hated shaking hands. So now I had an excuse not to shake hands by saying, you know, I'm sorry, I can't touch you. You might be menstruating, which my wife found offensive. But I will say that the Bible also has rules about not shaking men's hands for a day after they ejaculate. Now, men, after they ejaculate, are well, impure for I, I a will, day. Is that why it's impure? That, to me, it's, it seems like a more obvious hygiene issue there. <laughs> well, you can wash your hands all you want afterwards, but you're still impure. So it was not. It was. It was. It was gender inclusive avoidance of handshakes during my Bible year because I would say I can't shake your hand unless you know I can't be sure that you haven't ejaculated. So. <laughs> Oh, uh, I thought it was that you, you weren't sure if you had ejaculated. <laughs> <laughs> My wife had just given birth, so I was not doing a lot of ejaculating at the time. I just see. for your information. Yeah. <laughs> so you are a writer professionally, obviously. Uh, how has the crisis affected what you are writing? Is it different from what you were up to two months ago? I am, well, I have written a, a couple of uh, COVID-related articles. I, I have been... Uh, 
I have been ahead of the curve on one other thing. Not I have no doubt. Tell us about it now. <laughs> okay. It was, I have been doing Zoom lunches for about five years. Uh, and so Specifically was, Zoom? No, they were Skype lunches. Uh, okay. Okay. Let's not get You're crazy. Right. <laughs> no one heard of Zoom six weeks ago. No. Uh, yeah, I was doing ye old Skype lunches. So I would order lunch or make lunch at home and then the other person would and we would eat it over Skype. And uh, and it, it was mostly for convenience because I hated schlepping to Midtown or Brooklyn. So I wrote an endorsement like a little etiquette for uh, Zoom lunches. Oh, very nice. Uh, but my my big project I'm still working on is a book about puzzles, the sort of a, um, a first person ode to my love of all kinds of puzzles. So uh, uh, crossword is my first love, but there's logic puzzles, riddles, and uh, and jigsaws, which I keep reading are hot, hot, hot. Again, not to boast, but my family and I did go to Spain in September and represent the United States of America in the World Jigsaw Puzzle Championships. And we came in second to last fuck yeah that's <laughs> but i was <laughs> now was, it, the, the the not to boast thing made sense when you got around <laughs> yes it's really not to, yeah we were terrible but it's also i love seeing people who have devoted those ten thousand hours to anything even something as ridiculous as jigsaw puzzles what do you know about ravensburg that seems to be the big name in jigsaw puzzle and it, it seems it sounds a little nazi to me it's scary. And your uh, your previous book, the Thanks a Thousand, you uh, were inspired to look into all the people who had something to do with making your morning cup of coffee, and going and finding them and thanking them for the work that they had done. It was a a, a beautiful little book. Thank you, Steve. I, I really did enjoy it, and so did my uh, so did my thirteen year old, which is saying lovely. Yeah. Not mine, but thank you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but now, if I understand right, you're doing something related to that uh, a uh, a thank you letter writing project of some kind. Yeah, it's not for profit or even publication, but I did find this ritual of thanking people was actually really good for keeping me from spiraling into depression because it just does remind you of the hundreds of people that it takes for any little thing in your life, all the things that go right for a cup of coffee. You know, it had to be grown. It had to be shipped. You got to thank the people who paved the road. I find it really therapeutic just to write quick emails or, or Facebook notes to all the people who are keeping our society from totally collapsing. I want to thank you for working at the grocery store. I actually got an interesting uh, email from someone that's, it says uh, on one side, who society thinks works at hospitals, doctors and nurses, and who really works at hospitals. And it's a list of like 20 people you don't think about, like respiratory therapists and uh, business office and billing staff and on and on. So many people working that, um, that are keeping us together and uh, and they definitely deserve my gratitude. Yeah, I'm sure they appreciate getting the note, but it's you find that it's good for you too. It's therapeutic. Well, it, it takes me out of myself and reminds me of all the things all that are being done so that I can get my groceries and and eat. It's uh, I find a necessary corrective for just the uh, 
the tidal wave of negativity. Right. It, there's something there's something uh, prayer-like about it, I think. Well, it's funny because I this project began almost because of um, a secular prayer that I like to do. I did this year of living biblically, and I liked saying these prayers of thanks. But I am pretty agnostic atheist, so I tried to adapt prayer to be more secular. So before a meal, I would say things like, you know, I want to thank the farmer who helped grow this these tomatoes and the cashier who sold me the tomatoes. And my son, who was 11 at the time, said, you know, dad, that's fine, but it's also pretty lame because those people can't hear you and they're, <laughs> you know, they're not getting anything out of it. If you really cared, you would thank him in person. And I was like, that is a good book idea. So I was like, you just earned your supper. And, and I do I do agree. It's sort of a secular version of a prayer. So this being Reboot, and you may have already answered this question, what would you say since the crisis began, what's the Jewiest thing that you've done or that's happened to you? I have a couple super Jewy things. A friend of mine has a, a daily podcast about interpreting the daily section of the Talmud. And he called me, I was very flattered. Uh, he called me about the section on shotnez, which is the prohibition against wearing two different types of fabrics at oh, once. Yes, that's frowned upon. I know that. Yeah. Yes, it's very non-kosher. To mix your, to mix your linen with your leather is, is not good. <laughs> that one sounds terrible. Linen and wool is the traditionally the the big no-no. But it's not one that resonates with me. But uh, during my year, I was very careful. I just got rid of everything, like poly cotton, you name it. But, you know, the question is why? Why would God care? It's like, seems like serious micromanaging on God's part. But the, the defense is that it is these kinds of rules, the ones that are the most baffling and bizarre, are actually the most important to pay attention to because they show your faith. Like anyone can be like, oh, yeah, I'm not going to kill. That makes sense. But only the truly faithful will be like, oh, yeah, I'm not wearing that. That's that. It's in the Bible. Okay. I'm not okay. It. Yep. Well, and that's that's also definitely where I get off the bus, that sort of thing. <laughs> And of course, there was no version of hell in uh, ancient Judaism. So I think you're safe. AJ Jacobs, thanks so much for joining us on In Quarantine. Thank you, Steve. And that's it for this episode. You can find everything you ever wanted to know about AJ at ajjacobs.com. Until next time, I'm Steve Bodo saying, don't touch that! Don't touch that!